מלכת בגויים, איי איי איי, תהילה שם המלוכו, איי איי איי, ומוהי שייל ומוהי שייל בהגויים, תהילה שם המלוכו, איי איי איי, Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining. Um, tonight's class was sponsored by Ilana Yakovlev. And she is dedicated. Now, she dedicated last week's share. I just didn't know who the dedication was. Now I found out who it is. It was Ilana. And uh, last, neat, last week's class was dedicated, and tonight's class, for the yard site of Gershon Ben David. Uh, his yard site was Zeis Hanukkah. May his neshama have a very, very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. And also in honor of Yona Ben Dmitri. His yard site, this is his first yard site. His yard site was the 19th of Tavis. Oh, is going to be the 19th of Tavis. So it's coming up. I think, uh, what is it? I think uh, Friday or so. Yona uh, sadly left this world at an early age. And may Hashem help that he should return here together with all those souls that belong down here in bodies. He should return here very, very soon. We should turn around and just suddenly, wow, here, here they all are. As if they never left. May Hashem help. We should see that because of Mamish. Much bracha mazel to everyone. Um, I also want to make a note that I'm, I'd like to dedicate this year to a really dear friend who passed away this week. And um, it occurred to me right now while I'm beginning to say this year, or else I would have done my research. Um, Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Greenbaum. So it was Yaakov Ben Rachel, was his mother's name, his father's name. I don't know. Just as Levayo was today and yesterday. Such an incredible, incredible person, a dear friend of mine. A huge supporter of mine, Yisrael, in many, many ways. And I'm going to miss him dearly, and I hope the Abishter again, first of all, will comfort his very, very special wife and his son and family shouldn't know of any more sorrow and any more pain. And um, we should have him here, as a Sashem, a car. This should be a very, very short. I totally don't understand why people are still leaving. Uh, after everything that we're talking about and how much Mashiach is here already, no one has to exit anymore. I mean, obviously, if it happens, we understand that whatever happens, happens for a reason. And as Jews, we always say that Hashem is right, but at least from our minds, it's like, come on, come on. We're ready already. It's unnecessary. Okay. Maybe Hashem will listen to me and say it's unnecessary. Everybody should say, Amen. Amen. Okay, good. It's okay to argue with the Yebishter. As long as we ultimately know he's right, it's okay to argue with him and tell him uh, he wants us to argue. And, uh, to, you know, he's married to us. Which husband wants, his, wants to be married to a woman who never argues? That would be horrible. Sometimes they argue too much, but <laughs> any case. Okay. Um, 
Tonight, although I didn't give this class the right amount of preparation, I'm going to admit to that because I, I whatever, I had insomnia last night and then I was very tired today and, and uh, I don't know, this tension, this Mashiach tension that I spoke about last week is, is really taking a toll on me. You better come fast because I'm beginning not to sleep at night because of this tension. Okay? All right. That's another reason why I'm going to do whatever I can to hasten the redemption faster because I want a good night's sleep. Anyways, I think when Mashiach will come, he says, no, I think he'll say, no one is sleeping. Now we're going to get to work. <laughs> you slept enough. Call this is compared to asleep. Now is the time to be awake. In any case, so we're living in super, super, super exciting times. And coming off the miracles that we spoke about last week, I highly recommend whoever's listening to this class should listen to last week's class as well. Um, it's just helping ourselves, all of us together, refocus, reshape, realize what's going on in the world. Because everybody's so busy with their life, everybody has so much stuff happening that we don't step back and look at this incredible miracles that are happening around us. So last week, we had this fantastic discussion about the miracles that are taking place in the world, the total transformation that's happening for the Jewish people. So last week I spoke about the miracle of the, uh, the Iranian general that was killed, Soleimani. And I, when I gave the shear, I, I, I was pointing out to the unbelievable idea that that happened on, he was, I don't want to even call buried, he doesn't deserve the dignity of being buried, but he was, you know, his funeral was on the, the day before the 10th of Teves, which is when the destruction be began. Asar Batavis is the 10th day, the beginning of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he and his predecessor, Saddam Hussein, from a different country, and actually big enemies, Iran and Iraq were big enemies, but what they are equal in is that they both of them were fighting against Yerushalayim. Both of them wanted to stop the building of Jerusalem or kick the Jews out of Jerusalem and take it, back, take it for the Arabs. So, uh, as I mentioned, they both had Quds forces. Quds means Jerusalem. And Saddam Hussein was hung, literally. He was hung like Haman on, on the day, the 9th of Teves, the day before the 10th of Teves. In other words, he couldn't celebrate. He called himself Nebuchadnezzar. He could not celebrate the anniversary of his siege on Jerusalem. He couldn't bring it full circle. He was hanging by the time it came the day before. And then now, uh, whatever, 25, uh, no, actually from when he was hung, maybe about 15 years later, this other enemy of Israel, enemy of the, of the world, enemy of every decent human being, uh, a man responsible for so much death and destruction and carnage in the world, also was killed. But when I told you this last week, I didn't even know the extent of the miracle, I still don't know. Because just like when I told you the st story about Saddam Hussein last week, we had no clue the awesomeness of the miracle until many years after the war in which we found out how dangerous it was, how many scuds with chemical and biological weapons were ready to be unleashed for the total destruction of Israel. And how, without any explanation, it didn't happen 
just pure godliness, pure divine intervention in this world. Unbelievable, only found out later. We still don't know the extent of what just happened last week with the taking out of the Soleimani. We don't know. But what, what, what I didn't know last week and I know this week is just what happened in the last few days. People were predicting a possible spiral war, major confrontation with Iran, that Iran would seek revenge and want a lot of bloodshed, which would have brought back a massive attack from the United States, which could have spiraled into a world war. Taking into consideration that the Iranians were doing military exercises with the Chinese and the Russians lately, doesn't take much for this thing to blow up as a major world war and who knows what could have happened. And once these wars start, you know, they, 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 have, their, they have like this, like, a, like, like, you, like, like, um, like hurric hurricanes have like a, a weather system of their own. Like it's an entire, so these things can go, and people were kind of nervous, it was scary. Who knows what was gonna happen? And here we see the unbelievable miracle. Iran responded with 15 lame missiles that either intentionally or unintentionally, either way you'll spin it, didn't kill anybody, damaged little thing, a little, uh, some, 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 uh, some, I think, American uh, military property, but that's about it. And they paid the ultimate price. They, they literally, their heart, they, they, they got a, 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 a dagger in their heart. He was the whole macher, he was their whole sophistication, he was the brain behind all their malicious forces. Incredible, incredible what's going on. The Abishter is protecting and watching. And the news that's coming now, as I explained last week, the last fortress of darkness, at least pertaining to the Jewish people living in Eretz Yisrael and hypothetically building a Beis Amigdash on the Temple Mount, after everybody was eliminated, all the Arab states that were opposing Israel, one by one fell. Not when I say fell, either destroyed or they had a complete makeover. In the Arab Spring, governments were replaced without a war. The main part is, the Rebbe said this, the Lubavitch Rebbe said that it's going to happen without bloodshed. The Rebbe said that's the whole idea of the miracles of, of the redemption. Is the Abish, they're doing all these things, and that the nations from within themselves turn over. You don't need a Moshe Rabbeinu with a stick coming and threatening and bringing Makas. He is doing it. Moshe is doing it. Moshiach is doing it, like we'll see in tonight's class. But he's doing it kind of Bluetooth. In other words, from within his spot, he's causing these trans transformations to happen from within nations after nations. The last one that was standing as a menace, as a force, and that was literally driving Hamas, Hezbollah, and, 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 and the, and the, and the uh, PA, the only ones that were still there, that is, it all came from Iran. And now what's happening? The protests that are taking place in Iran suddenly, where the people are beginning to get the courage, and you're having defectors. Yesterday you had the Olympian uh, uh, medalist who sent her, her tweet out that she's, 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 she's leaving Iran and sorrow for, for that. And then today, two TV anchors, the newest news, have defected. Two state TV women who've been, who've been talking and selling Iranian propaganda for the last who knows how long, publicly left and apologized. 
and said, we, one of them wrote, I apologize for feeding you lies for the, for the last 13 years. Let's wait when the United States media is going to do that. Bezrat Hashem, very soon. I apologize for the lies, for the deception. I, it's crazy, it's crazy. It's just happening, it's happening in front of our eyes. Who knows? I mean, let's pray. Again, we have to keep on davening and praying that everything should go down with the ultimate protection of Hashem, b'chesed u'berachamim. With, 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 yeah. So as we're, 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 we see these things happening, we have to pay attention. We have to thank Hashem. We have to sing and dance for the miracles. We have to thank Hashem for it. But part of the redemption, what fuels the redemption, is our mindset. It is so crucial that we, the Jewish people, step out of this inferiority, of this dark state of Golas, of this notion that everything is bad and dark, um, and, 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 the, and being intimidated by what we might call the, 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 the forces, the forces of nature, the forces of the world, which you know, can sometimes challenge our Ramun and our faith, so the real idea of, of Mashiach's coming, we, the real difference between Golos and Geula, exile and redemption, lies not in the external elements that happen in the world, but in the heart and soul, in the consciousness of man, of, of, of human beings. And the root of the consciousness of humanity are the Jewish people. So we as Jews, when we start living in a redemptive state of mind, when we start living in the world of Mashiach, with the, eye, with the, with the eyes of Mashiach, with, the, with, with Geula, with, 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 with um, eyes of, 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 uh, of the redemption, seeing things in the brightness of what's going on, and what it really means is seeing Hashem in everything, that itself intensifies the process and makes it happen faster and quicker, easier, and so on and so forth. So it is so important that we study the miracles, know what's going on, and see the Hashgacha Pratis, see the divine providence. Because as we mentioned, if you're not paying attention, it's possible to, to you know, turn on the news, see a story, and maybe get inspired by, wow, that was special. But then, you know, so quickly go back to the daily grind of everyday living and miss. And, and the main thing over here is being that it's a process, it's important to put together the, the dots. Because you have to be able to look like what a bird's eye view at a three or a five year period and see, hold it. Something is changing in an extraordinary way. And um, this is the Giyula. We need to be aware we need to be aware of the Geula happening. Okay. So now, um, where do we find that? So let's take a look at this week's parsha because this week is the parsha of the redemption. I mentioned already at the beginning of the year, there has not been a year as worthy of miracles as a, a, a window for God to feed his miracles into the world like this year in a very long time. We spoke a lot about 5780, that eight is the number of the Ein Sof, of the infinite. Eight transcends time and space. 
And therefore, all the miracles of the Jewish people always associate with number eight. This year is the transcendental light of number eight. So it's, especially it's not just eight, it's eight attached to seven. Because as I mentioned, the Moshiach that's happening is not a fantasy Moshiach, which is some miraculous being snapping his finger and the entire world changes. That would be nice, but it wouldn't be real. And it wouldn't be permanent. It would be something external to who we are and what we are. In order for the redemption to be real, to be ours, it has to be a process that works with nature, from within nature, and yet it's above nature. It's this combination of eight and seven. So that's this year. Within this year itself, as the year is progressing, especially that we're now reading the part of the Torah, we're reading now the part of the Torah that is discussing the redemption, we can expect the redemption process to accelerate. And again, we can be bystanders or we can be the ones who make it happen. And the way you can make this happen is by recognizing the miracles, talking about it, sharing it with others. And if I can do my part, that's what I would like to do. So where do we see that itself in Parsha Shemos? That the, the, the change from the Golos to Geula happens inside the hearts of the Jewish people. Well, we see a fascinating story right at the beginning of the Parsha. It describes the harshness of the exile, the difficulties, the, the labor camps, the, the brutal suffering of the Jewish people. But more than that, it describes how the Egyptians were out to stop Jewish population. The explosive Jewish population growth, they wanted to stop Jewish children from being born to the point, first they tried to separate the men from the women by, with, the, with, the, with all the harsh labor. When for, that, for whatever reason, as the Midrash tells us, that didn't succeed, they went out in an all-out in an outright war to actually murder the Jewish babies. First they tried to murder them before they're born by getting the midwives to get involved. The midwives defied Pharaoh's orders and then they went as brutal as going into homes where Jewish babies were born, grabbing the, babe, the male kids and throwing them into the river. Okay? So as we get, and that's like the peak of the darkness. It reaches the gullus, the exile reached its darkest most ferocious moment. At that moment, and at, literally at that time, we have a burst of light. And that is, Torah tells of a story of a couple getting married or remarried again, as we know, Yocheved and Amram, and they have a child. And as soon as the child is born, they can actually see the light. The house is filled with light. This is little baby Moshe. But being that the Egyptian uh, patrols were going to come around and find the babies. She managed to hide him for three months because, as I said last week, he was born at he was a, he was a, he was a preemie. He was born in the seventh month. I made a mistake last week. Someone pointed out to me. I got a I got a WhatsApp all the way from South Africa. Doesn't it's not hard to send a WhatsApp to South Africa. It makes no difference if they're in South Africa. But someone listened to the shir in South Africa and she said, "But I thought you said you were born to seven months. I thought if he was born to six months, she's right because." He was born at the beginning of the seventh month, which means after six months, and then there was a three months she was able to hide him until the ninth month when they came to check. In any case, um, what did she do? Yocheved, she took her little baby and she put him into a basket and she sent him out to the Nile. Okay, so when the Pasuk describes um, Yocheved taking this baby and putting him by the Nile, it says, 
She took the child, she put him in this basket, Vatasim Basuf. She put him Basuf. So what does Basuf mean? So Rash, so the Targum says, Al Kif Nahara. So what does it mean, these words, Al Kif Nahara? So Kif Nahara means by the river banks. Kif means the bank which would mean, according to this, that she did not put little baby Moshe into the water, as we usually think. She put him actually on dry land right next to the river. Among, right? That's what it says. But we know that Moshe, and that's what it would seem, that's where he was. She put him, you know, she, obviously as you would say, as a mother, she, was, she, she wasn't comfortable putting him in the river. She put him on the side. But that's not where Moshe remained. Why? Because as the Torah relates, Basya, the daughter of, of Paro, is going down to bathe by the river and with her maidservants, and she sees a, a, a baby crying, and then she, she sends either her maidservant. From the Midrash we know she stretched out her hand because the baby was far away in the water and that she had to stretch her hand out to get it. Now, in the Pasuk, it doesn't say specifically that she actually pulled him from the water over here. But a little later, when she names him, what does she name Moshe? She names him Moshe. What does the name Moshe mean? Ki min sihu. From the water, I have pulled him out. Which means that where did she take Moshe from? From the water itself. Moshe was in the river. Okay? So now we need to understand how did Moshe Rabbeinu get from the banks into the river. And why did his mother put him on the side of the river and Moshe Rabbeinu afterwards ended up in the river? So the great um, genius rabbi, the, the Rogich Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, he was an incredible, incredible genius, master, master genius, who uh, lived you know, right before the Second World War, um, wrote a Sefer Tzofnas Pameach and on the Torah. And he has a very interesting explanation of why Moshe Rabbeinu, why Yochebed put him on the side of the river and then he ended up in the water. And he says like this, um, Yochebed really wanted to place him in the water because he would have been safer there for whatever reason, but she couldn't put him in the water. The reason she couldn't put him in the water was because we know that the Nile was considered a, 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 uh, a deity to the, to the Egyptians. It was considered a god. They worshipped the Nile. The, the, the Egyptians had many different things that they worshipped, but their primary um, god, their idol, their, was the Nile. And therefore, the Nile, big, big, that they worshipped the Nile, the Nile has halachically the halacha of an avodazara. Avodazara means an idol. Being that that's the case, the, the question is, we know that for every, for every, every, um, time a person's life is in jeopardy, you're allowed to, you're allowed to um, violate a commandment to save a life. So if someone needs, let's say, non-kosher or something in order to survive, you would maybe, you'd be allowed to eat something non-kosher, even if it's this, in order to save a life. But there are three things that you're not, three prohibitions that you're not allowed to violate, transgress in order to save your life. And one of them is idolatry. So here, she would be saving Moshe's life through the river, which the river is an idol. And therefore, Yocheved 
was not going to do that. So she didn't put Moshe in the river, she put him next to the river. Then what happened? Basya, the, the uh, princess, the daughter of, of, of Paro, is coming to the river, and uh, what is she doing? She's going, to, uh, she's going to bathe. The Midrash tells us, and Rashi brings it, that this wasn't just going swimming at the, in the river. This was because she was actually going to use the Nile as a mikvah. Why was she going to a mikvah? Because she, at that point, recognized the falseness of the Egyptian, of the Egyptian worldview, of the Egyptians' uh, idolatry, and she recognized monotheism. So she wanted to now wash herself. In a sense, she was converting. Now, I am not going to say that it means completely that she was becoming a Jewess, she was really saying, I want to, I mean, it's, that she was saying, oh, the Jews are that way and I'm becoming a Jew. I don't know that. But at least she was accepting monotheism. And, in, and how was she doing it? When someone converts, they need to go to the mikvah. So she was going to the Nile to table in that mikvah. Now the law is, the law is, that an idol can an, once something is an idol, can it become, can you undo the status of idol on an object that's an idol? So the answer is a Jew cannot remove the status of an idol from an idol. It, a Jew makes an idol, the idol is an idol forever. A Jew can't undo it. A non-Jew, if they worship something and then they declare it null and void, then they can make the idol be, remove it from being an idol, let it's no more eliminate the, the idleness of it. Being that she, now, I don't know if he says this, I didn't see it inside, but I would think, she's not just a regular person. She is the princess. So she's this powerful, powerful woman in Egypt. So when she is declaring the, idol, the, the idols of Egypt void and meaningless, so her act of going to the water and dipping in that mikvah, that itself was a tshuva and an undoing. So now the Nile ceased to be an avodazara. She canceled it. She canceled the Nile's idol status. So now the, 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 the Nile is no more an avodazara. Once she did that, Moshe's little basket floated right into the water because it was no more an idol and then Moshe can be floating in the water she sees Moshe and she pulls him out you see just one little good act a person has a thought of tshuva sincere going to the water she's responsible for changing the world for all time for saving Moshe Rabbeinu for raising him as the leader of the Jewish people the one who brings the exodus and brings salvation to the entire world and all the goodness of the world all comes from her the daughter of Paro that's the story. Okay. That's his interpretation. Genius of Rabbi Yosef Rosen of what happened of the rugged shover, of what happened over here by the Nile. Now the Midrash tells us, so first of all you see an amazing thing. You see the power of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's a little baby. He's three months old. 
His holiness is so powerful. It's so strong. He's exuberating. He's emanating such truth that the moment he comes next, he's by the next to the river, his power is what? Canceling the idol already. Obviously, it didn't come through him because he couldn't. That's the secret over here. The ultimate transformation of an idol cannot come from the Jewish people. It can't even come from Moshe. It has to come from the idolaters themselves. They need to cancel it. Because they make it, they need to cancel it. But because Moshe is there, it's causing the idols of Egypt to become nullified. Now, what else happened at that moment when Moshe was put in the river? So the, there's, isn't, the Medrash tells us another fascinating thing. Why were the Egyptians casting babies precisely into the Nile. Why were they doing that? There's many ways to kill. And obviously, this is not so good for public opinion. Imagine if they got some videos on this, sending them out in the world, world, world opinion. Jews, babies are being thrown into the river. I mean, even the hardest of hearts would melt for something like that. So you can, and that's actually the reason why Pharaoh told the midwives to do it, because like that he felt it can be done very quietly, just the people for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're not healthy, the women, they're giving born to stillborn children, and so on. It can be like covered up that it's not a mass murder of, 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 of babies. But this would have been done in the public. You can imagine the family came running after and the screaming and the mayhem and the shouting, don't give me back my child. I mean, we can't imagine the panic what was going on. So this would create a big commotion. So why, for publicity, this is really not good in Egypt. So why did they do it? So there was a special reason why they did it. They did it because they were told, they knew they were great sorcerers and they were able to see things. They saw that the Jewish people would be redeemed. They knew that. And they saw that the Redeemer was born. They already had the information. When Moshe was born, they knew the Redeemer was born. But they didn't know who it was. But they were also able to see that Moshe is going to be punished with water. He's going to be kind of defeated with water. He's going to be stopped with water. We know Moshe later in his life, his, the reason Moshe didn't go into Eretz Yisrael because of the sin that he did, or what looks like a sin, is that he hit the rock instead of talking to the rock and out came the water. They were able to see something they didn't see clearly. So they knew that the power against Moshe is the power of water. So they figured if they find this Jewish baby and they throw him in the river, they'll defeat him with the power. The water will have power over Moshe. So that's why, and they didn't know which, which Jewish child. So they went and they decreed it on all Jewish children. Actually, it was a point, even though there were a short period, they, would, they were even throwing Egyptian, Egyptian babies into the water. Because they didn't know if Moshe would be Jewish or Egyptian. Why? Because they see, but they don't see clearly. They only have like a confused vision. Moshe was Jewish, but he was raised Egyptian in the palace. So when they, therefore they couldn't figure out. That's why they were actually killing Egyptian babies as well. Jewish babies and Egypt for that period of time. What happened? As soon as Moshe's um, little um, basket, the little basket where Moshe was in, floated into the Nile River, the sorcerers were, you know, tapping in, looking into the energy and so on and so forth. And they said, we got him. He's dead. He's in the water. We threw him in the water. And at that, and as soon as that happened, Paro revoked the edict, 
and no more Jewish babies were killed. Comes out that when Moshe Rabbeinu entered the Nile River, at this happening, when Yocheved is bringing Moshe to the river, two astronomical things occurred. Two phenomenal things happened. Number one, the powerful idol of Egypt, which is the Nile River, was canceled. No more idol. In a sense, the power of Egypt was broken. Number two, he already saved all the Jewish babies. He's the redeemer. So as soon as, soon as he is born, or as soon as he starts making contact with the outside world, he's already bringing redemption. Bracha and Hatzalah save uh, uh, um, incredible power of Geula and redemption to the world. So we need to understand that these two things related. Is it just happens to be he canceled the idol of Egypt and he also saved the Jewish people. Obviously we can make a connection and say that you know, if Egypt is broken, the Jewish people are saved. But is there a deeper connection between these two? That both these things happened together at the same time. So the Rebbe says something really fascinating. Phenomenal. He says, in order to understand this and appreciate this, we have to really understand better what is the deeper meaning of the exile. Exile is not just, as we said before, a physical enslavement. The real exile is a psychological darkness. The real exile is a, is a in a sense, I would say, a mental illness in which we are are, are completely misaligned. We're not seeing things. It's a distortion. In other words, there's a certain paralyzing darkness that comes upon people or the Jewish people when they're in Golas that they're just not, they're not in touch with reality. They're just not seeing things that are real. They're seeing things lopsided. They're seeing things crooked. They have a miscrewed or a, 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 a um, what would be the word? A, what's the difference? It's messed up. They're not seeing things clearly. And what is it? What's the, so what's the, 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 real, the real darkness of the exile? We spoke about this in a class three years ago in Parsha Shemos. Got the name of it. I noticed it today. So it was a similar subject. In any case, um, what is this darkness? What does it constitute? The darkness is that we don't appreciate and understand and see that God is the only reality. And the Abishter is the only one that, that runs the world. We begin to ascribe significance, importance to things other than Hashem. And again, that means that we, be, we, we, to a certain degree, become idol worshippers. This is really the sin of idolatry. When you start giving importance to other things. And that is what the difference of living in Egypt was or living in Eretz Yisrael. You see, Egypt is a land the very, very environment of Egypt, the place of Mitzrayim, is conducive for this concealment and for this darkness. Egypt 
survives, its very survival is on the waters that are coming from the Nile River. The Nile is this powerful, powerful river. And the, Egypts, the Egyptians had an incredible irrigation system where the waters of the Nile was able, because no, it doesn't really rain in Egypt. So all their water comes from the Nile. Because the Nile was a source of their sustenance, because when the waters come, they can, they can uh, like you see from Pyro's dream, where was Pyro standing in Parshas Miketi? Standing next to the Nile, and from the Nile come out the seven cows, robust cows, and then the other seven uh, really bad-looking cows, which represent seven good years, years of plenty and years of famine. Why? Because it's the Nile that's going to determine if they're going to be fat cows, or they're going to be... Uh, I was now in, uh, in, in Australia, so I, was in a, I went to visit Tasmania. Sadly, now the fires are there, but we saw, like, I didn't, I hardly saw people in Tasmania, but I saw a whole lot of sheep, so much sheep. It's amazing. And, uh, but I was told that um, they're, they're having a hard time now with the meat, with the sheep. The sheep are not, the lamb meat, the prices are going up, and so on and so forth, because there's been a dry, it's been very dry out there, and because of that, the sheep are not as fatty as they were, and they're, uh, in any case, so it's all dependent on the, which is on the on the uh, on the produce, which the produce is dependent on the rain, on the water, on the irrigation. So the Nile was like the power of everything, and that's why we can understand that Paro served the the, the Nile. He saw this as a superpower. This is our God. This is this determines the well-being of Egypt. The land of Israel is very different. The land of Israel is dependent on rainwater. It does not have any real river sources. Water is coming from elsewhere. Its water is dependent on rain. Limtar hashamayim, the Ebrister says, Apostle Parshas in Sefer Devarim, loy keeretz mitzrayim. It's not the land of Egypt. It's not like the land of Egypt where you have to go water it from the river and so on and so forth. Here, Hashem comes and does all his irrigation, all your irrigation for you. God comes and will water you. You don't even have to go around and sprinkle the water because God will sprinkle it. But what does that mean? It means that you have to look up to Hashem and pray. You realize that you are in Hashem's hands and no one else, there's no other force. Nothing you can do can help you in the situation when you need rain and you don't have rain. You have to pray, you have to say, Abish there, please, God, please send the rains. Living in Israel meant that you picked up your eyes to heaven three times a day and you spoke to Hashem. You're intimate with God. You recognize Hashem, you feel you need Hashem, and when you feel you need Hashem, you're happy to serve Him when God gives you His blessings. So it creates, it festers, it brings about a relationship. In Egypt, Egypt believes in the forces of nature. They don't know Hashem. They don't recognize God. By the way, just an interesting thing, being that we're talking about the rainwaters, and we have to open our eyes to see all the signs of the redemption, here as well, we notice the signs of the redemption. Israel is receiving massive amounts of water now. The Kinneret has risen like crazy. Hashem should protect because it can sometimes be a little dangerous, but the waters are coming. It's unbelievable. And so much so that they just had it in the news today. You know, I search the news. I do. Why? I'm scanning for news for Reed Mashiach. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I like to report. I like to make Jews happy. In this class, you will always hear the good things that are happening. 
So what happens in, in Egypt, so in Eretz Yisrael, today they reported in the news that they, found, uh, uh, they dug up a, a, a while ago certain mikvahs, ritual baths, that were there for the second, from the time of the, sec, of the second temple or maybe even the first temple period when they had ritual baths. And this is the first time in 2,000 years that those um, ritual baths now are filled with water ready to be used as a mikvah. Because, I mean, they uncovered them not too long ago, but the rains that have been coming now, so we have everything already next year, everything is ready, everything is ready. Like they always, from time to time, they say we have a red heifer. I don't know where the red heifer is now. Maybe we have that ready as well. The Abishter is preparing everything, but even the water mikvah, but even more so, is that today I watched the video the, that literally there are rivers flowing from Jerusalem going down the Judean hills, down, 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 all the way to the Yam HaMelech, all the way to the Salt Sea, which some people are pointing to the fulfillment. You can watch these videos of flash floods, literally gushing waters. And say for Yecheskel, I looked it up before, but I, I forgot which. I think either Perik Mem Dalit or Perik Mem Zion, chapter 44 or 47. I'm not a, I, 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 I'm, I'm apologize for not uh, having the uh, exact Pasuk. Over there it describes how the, the, that very dead place is going to come alive and massive waters, waters are going to come into, those, into, those, into, into that area, into that dead place, and it's actually going to cause a thriving of life, which, which for the first time actually about a year ago is where scientists have found in that area that there is already a sign of life. That there is, in, in what they thought is so dead that nothing can live, they're seeing certain things that are living there. I'm not exact, certain fish. But this is amazing. Now what I thought was, I found also interesting. Again, these are, this is my own associations. I'm not, I can't tell you 100% the validity of the Moshiach element, but I think it's interesting because the rise of Jerusalem, the fall of the other side. So if you remember, I said the other news that, that was coming out today, the other news, we have Yaakov and Esav, uh, Yisrael and Edom. The other news that was today, which I saw, is that a couple of months ago, they had massive flooding in Venice, in Italy. Massive flooding. Today, the news is that literally all the water in Venice has dried out. And the boats, the canals are empty. And there's no water there, and the boats are just sitting like on dry, on dry. It's very, very, it's amazing. It's in contrasting what was a few months ago, that there was so much water, the water, the 80% of the city was underwater. And now, it like dried out. Okay, I'm, it's interesting. To say that Jerusalem is, and Eretz Yisrael is receiving the big waters, in any case, the beauty over here is, the beauty over here is, Eretz Yisroel, rain comes from the Ebershter. When it comes from God, inherently, we recognize God as the boss. So it puts, it, it, it eliminates any sense of reliance on any other force but Hashem. Egypt makes you, gives that feeling that we are dependent on nature, mother nature. Whatever that nature is. Um, and so what did Paro do? Why did Paro take the Jewish babies and put them in the Nile? See, Golos, the real, when we say Egypt, is 
is um, subjugating the Jewish people. The power for the Egyptians to subjugate us physically, to enslave us, is when they subjugate us spiritually. You see, exile, the time of, it's a war of ideologies. It's not just a, a, a war physically, who's stronger? It's an ideological war. Egypt believes in nature. Mitzrayim means constrictions, shapes, forms, definitions. It can't break out of these definitions. It believed, and it believed, it perfectly figured out the system. Perfectly figured out a system. How we can save the planet from global warming, or this or that, we'll tweak over here, we'll watch over here, we'll make like this. We are in charge over everything. It's all in our hands. We're the bosses of everything. The Egyptians had it down to a, to a, to a science. It was all nature, and maybe the manipulation within nature, how to manipulate things and so on and so forth, to their advantage. But there is no higher authority that you bend down to, that you beg to, that you connect to. There's, they don't believe in Hashem. Jewish people stand for the belief that there is one power and one power only, and that power guides and directs every single thing in the universe. He works, he creates nature, creates it every second, directs it, and he alone is the one doing everything, even though he's acting in a... When he's acting through nature, means he's acting through a predictable, repetitive way. But in any given chance, if you pray to him and you talk to him, he can, he can move things around for you, because nature has no power at all. The Egyptians could not stand that we believe that way. So what did they want in order for them to have power over the Jewish people? They had to enslave our minds to their way of seeing things. So they were taking Jewish babies, meaning educating. It's same like the communists who were taking Jewish children, forcing them to put them into the, into the, Russian, into the, into the Russian government schools so that they can stuff their brains with heretical beliefs. That's what the communists were doing in Russia. They did not want, and they were after the children. They didn't care the older people, you know, you can go to shul, but give me your kids. That's what Paro was doing. Give me your children. Let me indoctrinate them with the feeling that I'm in charge of my destiny. It's my parnasa, my livelihood is dependent. If I go to college, if I get a good degree, if I'll be this and if I'll be that. I'm not saying we don't have to do ishtadlus, we need to work our way, but we have to know that I don't make a penny, one dime, or even a penny, uh, with, without the Abishter himself giving it to me. How, what, and where, and when? Good. So Hashem wants us to participate, to do certain kalim, to make certain, uh, uh, to take certain actions in order that we can create some kind of a, a, a vessel for his blessing, but it's only God. That was the war. That was what Paro was doing when he, so now you see the connection. The, the, the Nile River itself as an idol this that the Nile River was an idol was what the Egyptians worshipped that itself is the content of throwing Jewish babies into the Nile in other words sub subjugating these innocent minds Jews who have within them a direct connection to God Jews who don't don't have this blockage Jews who inherently can see the truth how God is everything and everything is Hashem, when the Egyptians got a hold of these babies, they darkened them by throwing them into the Nile River. When did it stop? How do we get out of this darkness? 
especially after the Jews were subjugated to this indoctrination for generations, for literally for generations. When did it stop? It required us to have, it required us to have a Rebbe. And without a Rebbe, we were paralyzed. So what's a Rebbe? A Rebbe is Moshe Rabbeinu, a super neshama, a super powerful soul. I would suggest, if you if you'd like something to remind us, what we spoke last year in a class on Parsha Shemos, called Moshe, our Moshe, where I discussed all about the power of a Rebbe, a Nasi Hadoyer, someone that can infuse the Jewish people with emuna. Moshe Rabbeinu is called Reya Mehemna. Reya Mehemna means the faithful shepherd. And as I discussed in that class, it doesn't mean just a faithful shepherd that we can rely on him. It means he's someone who, just like a shepherd, nurtures his flock, he feeds his sheep, he feeds them, he takes care of them, he nurtures them. So to Moshe Rabbeinu was able, had that ability to nurture the Jewish souls, feeding them. Feeding them with what? Feeding them with faith. Moshe was able to nurture our faith back to good health. And the novelty of Moshe, here's the, and here's the whole thing, the novelty of Moshe is that Moshe can do it in the midst of Egypt, in the midst of a culture that is so steeped in the belief that, you know, you're in charge of your destiny. You pray to, the, to, to this force or that force, but all these forces, they have power over your life. No, and, not, and denying, a complete denial of the supreme power and the only exclusive power. A, 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 a country that was completely, the entire system was developed that way. To the point that Jews could not think any differently. They couldn't, they were so, they became so brainwashed with this darkness of Egypt. Literally paralyzed. Mental, what's the word? Paralysis? Whatever the word is. Paralysis, that's what it Mental paralysis. They were stuck, they couldn't get out of it. That's the uniqueness of Moshe. When Moshe was born, first of all, just his neshama in this world already started giving vibrations of faith. Because I have to understand something. We have the faith. Deep, deep inside, we have the faith. Because what's the faith? The faith is a piece of God that's embedded in every neshama. Over there you know with absolute truth that God is. There's nothing but Him. You, you know it. You know it because you and Hashem are one. Because that piece of Hashem, it's an intrinsic truth. But because it's so powerful and so great, it's so high, it's so lofty, it's, it's, it's sometimes in, in the time of exile, it floats up and it does not enter into our consciousness. So we can be living in a concealment, in a darkness. Not be in touch with our own faith. Moshe Rabbeinu is the one that opens up the faucet in every soul. Opens a spigot and allows that faith to shine into a person's consciousness. To warm their heart, to remove the ice, to melt, to shine away, to, blow, to, 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 eliminate, to illuminate the darkness see and feel what we really intrinsically believe, the truth that Enoid Movadid is nothing but Hashem. That's, therefore, um, we find an interesting thing. The Medrash tells us, the, the Pasuk says, 
before Moshe Rabbeinu actually came back and began the process of redemption, what was he doing? He had to escape, and he went to Midian. When he came to Midian, he uh, got himself a job. What was he? He was a shepherd. Moshe was a shepherd of sheep. Whose sheep? Sheep. The Pasuk says, Yisro of Yisro. Let me read you the, the Pasuk. Moshe HaYeroya. Moshe HaYeroya as son Yisro. Moshe was shepherding the sheep of Yisro. Chosna was father-in-law. Kohen Midian, the priest of Midian. So the question over here is, now, Moshe was a shepherd. That's his profession. So until he's going to be given the Jewish, his Jewish flock, the, the Jewish people that are called Tzayn Kadashim, the holy sheep of God, before he's given his true flock and he was going to lead us through the desert for 40 years, leading this flock of sheep to the promised land, taking care of them at every level, feeding them, nurturing them. Before God gave, gave this job, he gave Moshe some practice. Like we find that Hashem tests the leaders before he appoints them. Hashem tested Moshe and Hashem tested King David, uh, David HaMelech, also with sheep. So he got his practice and he developed sensitivity to care for all of them. The Medrash says how he meticulously took care of every single one of them and how one day one of them ran away and it caused Moshe so much hardship. He had to like reroute and chase after it and finally he would take all the, it was a big headache. You would get angry they would take a stick and beat it. Moshe found that this shepherd, that this little sheep was thirsty. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, oh, if only would have known that that's all you want, you're thirsty. Uh, he felt compassion. He went and he picked it up and he carried it. And Hashem says, you can, you care with such caring and love every single one, you're going to shepherd my sheep. Okay. So we know Moshe, he's, he's, he's getting used to his job. Fine. But why does the Torah have to say, the Rebbe asks, that this is Tzoyin Yisro, that whose sheep it is? Okay, you want to know who? Why does it have to give you a whole, the title of Yisro, that he's what? Kohen Midian, he's the priest of Midian. Kohen Midian merely means, what, what does it mean he was the priest of Midian? The priest of Midian means he was the top idolater that there was. Midian was another place that was a real pagan uh, culture. And he was like the Pope of Midian. He was the... The, the, the priest of all the priests over there. And Rashi says in the beginning of Parshas Yisro that Yisro was such an idolater that he knew every single type of idolatry that there is. Every single one. He was a master in the whole subject of idolatry. His sheep, we know that the owner of, when you own something, part of your energy goes into your possessions. Yisro's philosophy, Yisro's um, darkness affected his sheep. When Moshe took over Yisro's sheep, we can say they were severely, severely ill, spiritually ill. They were in a very pathetic state. The beauty and the greatness of Moshe is now Moshe Rabbeinu is able to take sheep of Yisrael. Now let's understand something. It says in Sforim, it's in Yalkut Raveni, it says an amazing thing. These sheep were really had holy souls. 
It says, the Baal Shem Tov says, it's an amazing thing, the Baal Shem Tov says, that in these sheep were the souls of the Jewish people that were later going to be the children that were going to be born to the Jewish people that were now in Egypt. And that Moshe were going to be, these were the very sheep, these very Jewish people that Moshe led through the desert and he taught them. But he first taught them when? When they were by Yisrael. So what does it mean? These means Jewish souls trapped in the darkness of exile. Jewish trolls that have been, that, that have, their minds and their hearts, their minds have been darkened and their hearts have been clogged. Moshe Rabbeinu was able to elevate these sheep. He was able to nurture them with faith. That's his power. To be able to stimulate Jews when you're living in Jerusalem, when you're in seminary and you're inspired anyways, and some other speaker comes and inspires you, nice, wonderful, it's good. But to reach Jews in the midst of darkness, in the, in the most crippling darkness, only Moshe could do that. That's the uniqueness of this powerful neshama. And that is a game changer. When Moshe Rabbeinu can turn on the lights inside the hearts, inside the Jewish people. When Moshe Rabbeinu can allow the Jewish people to experience emunah, faith, the Abishter, God. There's nothing else that controls my life. I'm in the hands of Hashem, not Wall Street, and not my law degree, or this degree, or this kind of work or my employer, or whatever businesses that I'm doing, and all of my knowledge, and all of my doings, and my contacts, and my whatever, all this, this is babamises. It has no control over you. You're in the hands of Hashem. When Hashem wants, He gives, chas the opposite, and therefore all you can do is make a keli, and know you're in the hands of the Abishter. Moshe Rabbeinu brought this emuna back to the Jewish people. And that's the reason why he canceled the Nile River. The Avodah of Egypt, the, 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 the idol of Egypt, which was worshipping nature, was canceled. Because again, it's the Jewish people that feed. You take a look in America, you see, who are the ones who give power to every kind of anti-godly thing? Sadly, it's always the Jews. It's the Jews. They're at the head of every type of anti-Hashem element in the world. Sadly, Jews. Because Jews... Jewish neshamas, Jewish souls have very great power. And when we buy into something, we give that entity a lot of power. So when Moshe Rabbeinu was able to change the hearts and minds of the, bring them to Amunah, the Golos collapsed. That's his main work. His main work is not waving wands and bringing pimples on the Egyptians. That's going to happen automatically. That's once the Golis is done, these makas are going to come. The water, the blood is going to, the, the, the water is going to split. The blood, frogs are going to come. This is all just like external. The real power of Moshe is to make the Jewish people believe in God, to believe that they're going out of Egypt, that they're a free people, that Hashem is in charge, not the Pharaoh, and not this one, and not that one. That's Moshe Rabbeinu's gift, that's his ability. And that's why as soon as he did that, what did he do? He caused the Jewish people not to be thrown into the Nile. He changed that, the, the, that, 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 that outlook. Automatically, Egypt lost power. And the Nile became, was canceled. And that's how Moshe can take the Jewish people out. So he did it as soon as he's born. Because it has nothing to do, it doesn't even have so much to do with Moshe's teaching. 
It's a quality of that neshama. The Abishta puts a special neshama into the world, Moshe Rabbeinu's neshama, to purify the air, to, 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 de, to, to, um, to remove the pollution and to help us think clearly, see clearly, and see the emes and see the truth. This is what it is. If I can add, I will say something very, I think, which occurred to me today while I was learning this, very interesting thing. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, as everybody knows, um, was very, very against the, the, for religion, for people that are, you know, Torah Jews, I mean, that was very, very against, or at least the kids going to yeshiva and so on and so forth, learning secular studies. The Rebbe wanted, as many Jewish children, should study just Torah. And obviously the Rebbe was, was up against a massive, a massive opposition. Because in America, how do you expect your kid is going to make a living? If he doesn't know math and he doesn't know spelling, hey, he doesn't know how to write a sentence, how is he going to make a living? And the Rebbe's answer constantly, you can read it in the hundreds of talks. The Rebbe's always, the Abish, there is the Abish, there and the Abish will give Parnassim. This is, this is that, and a Jew, a Jew needs to believe in God. And that's why from all the schools, even the most Hasidish schools, they had more secular studies besides maybe Satmar and Lubavitch in, 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 in Quran Heights. The Oyla there was school, no, no secular studies. Maybe the beer, beer minimum, and other than that, not. The strange thing is, and this is what people can say, but hold it. From all the Hasidic rebbe's, or from all the uh, masters, leaders of the Jewish people, he's the only one, or famous one, if we can say, that had a secular education, that went to college. He went to see when he was in college in Sorbonne in uh, in Germany, and then in France. And a lot of people can understand how a Hasidic Rebbe studied in college and so on and so forth. It's a, real, it's a strange kind of thing. And the Rebbe very much discourages people from going to college. I mean, again, this doesn't apply to everybody. Talk to your mashpia or whatever. I'm not getting into the subject. I'm just trying to ask the simple question. It's such a strange thing that after the Rebbe did go to college. I think if I can say something, I mean, it, I know this has a... A, uh, a source as well, but, uh, but the, 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 the idea that I'm saying now, I think, is uh, something that occurred to me today. To me, it's obvious, but... And that is that, what is the greatest klipa today that causes people to have hardship with emunah, with faith? What do people struggle with? People, sophisticated people, study a lot, struggle a lot with, the, with science. Sometimes you see that there are, or at least what appears to be, contradictions between what Torah says and what science says. And people that kind of study sciences and says this, science presents itself as the absolute truth. And therefore, if you believe in Torah things which contradict science, you look backwards, you look like a silly person. If you're enlightened, if you're a smart person, it's a very, very, very dark klipa. And this is exactly the klipa before Mashiach related to the klipa of Mitzrayim. It's this belief, it's this system, not seeing the Eberster as the backbone of everything, but thinking that we have it all figured out. By the Rebbe going to college, it's the same idea of Moshe Rabbeinu shepherding the sheep 
of Yisro while they were uh, um, um, while they were Yisro's Yisro's um, uh, flock. In other words, going into a place where the science, the questions, where all that, that's the source of this, of this darkness. And over there, shining the amuna, shining the faith, enabling all Jews that, 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 that are struggling with this darkness to be able to find amuna and emes and truth even when it seems like they have questions. And I believe that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews, are strengthened through that light and holiness that is already put into, if we can say, into that secular um, um, knowledge, into that the study of the sciences, to reveal there too the Eberster. Doesn't mean that there's no struggle. Doesn't mean that there aren't people that's... But the fact that so many people that notwithstanding their studying of all of that, are deep believers in God and mostly have, in, in many things, we already see how science is merging with Torah and so on and so forth. I'm not saying in everything it's fully revealed that way. But the fact that people can have a Muna, not, notwithstanding, it needs a Moshe Rebbeinu being in the place of the darkness and over there shining the light. So by him going there and studying it and He's bringing this Ure'ei Amunah, bringing the Amunah into the... And that's redemption. And that's Geo. Now, let's take this just one step deeper. An amazing thing. In 1991, when the Rebbe became, reached his 89th birthday, on Yudalif Nisan, and he was entering into what's called Shnas Hatishim, his 90th year. So every year people with Hasidim would commemorate the Rebbe's birthday, the Rebbe himself would commemorate it. That year there was a very electrifying energy. As I told you last week, the Rebbe then was telling us that we've reached the time of the redemption. Hegiyaz Mangulaschem, the time of redemption has arrived. Geula is knocking on the door. We just have to open our eyes. The Rebbe I mentioned last week showed the collapse of communism. And then we spoke about the Iraq war and the miracles that happened. All this was taking place in that miraculous time. And the Rebbe so strongly was driving, not just Amunah in God, but the Amunah in Mashiach, the belief in Mashiach, and that it's imminent and it's something that's about to happen any day. The Rebbe on his birthday, Shabbos HaGadol, it's right at that time, around Yudalaf Nisan, the Rebbe was talking about Suddenly, that whole fab it's a fascinating talk. You can look it up. It's all about the centrality of Moshe Rabbeinu to the redemption. Why the entire going exodus of Egypt is all related to a tzaddik, to a nasi, to a, to a, to a leader, and why you need Moshe Rabbeinu. Well, if Hashem, obviously God is doing it, so why do you need a Moshe? Let's, let's get Hashem do it all. What, what was the whole idea? The Moshe Rabbeinu was the man, to the point that Moshe didn't want to go, and Moshe said, 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 send someone else. This is this week's in the Torah portion. You have Moshe Rabbeinu arguing with God, please send someone else, and Hashem doesn't accept it. It has to be dafka you. And we know even deeper than that. Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be the future redeemer as well, at least spiritually, not physically, because the physically has to be a grandson of King David, and Moshe is a levy, 
But spiritually, the Medrash says, Moshe Goel Rishon Goel Achra. Moshe is the first redeemer and the last redeemer. And the Rebbe said something else interesting. The Rebbe said that the, the redeemer, in Egypt, the age, the redemption came through the words. The secret words of the redemption were these words, Pakoid Pakadati. I have remembered you. That's the secret. That was the code of the redemption. The code of the future redemption, meaning which energy is Mashiach going to use to redeem the Jewish people? It's through the letter, it's through the words, Tzemach Tzamachti. A plant, Tzemach means a plant, Tzamachti, I made sprout forth. A plant. Every, because it's based on a midrash that the, the five double letters that there are, each one represents redemption. There are a few, Chaf is double. There's a long Chaf, a regular Chaf. Mem, Nun, Pei, and Tzadik. These are the five letters that are double. Each one is the power of the redemption. The redemption from Egypt came through the letter Pei. So the Rebbe says, well, that's why Moshe Rabbeinu was 80 years old by the redemption. The Rebbe was saying, since the future redemption is going to come through the Tzadik, so there's something very special about when the leader of the generation reaches his 90th birthday. The entire talk the Rebbe gave then was all about the power of Moshe Rabbeinu and the power of number tzaddik. I'm sorry, of the letter tzaddik, which is the number 90, and why that's such a significant number. I mentioned to you last week, and I know that not everybody says this, but as long as people are going to be afraid to speak MS and truth, then we stay exactly where we are in exile. Everybody made themselves comfortable in exile. It's like a baby. I'm going to say this. I'm sorry for saying it. It's like a baby who sometimes, you know, does something in their pamper and it stinks, but it's nice and warm and cozy and they like sitting in it and actually enjoy it. And when the mommy wants to change the pamper, they're kicking and screaming because they're kind of enjoying the warmth of their own whatever. Sadly, we've reached the point where the Jewish people are comfortable in this whatever. And therefore, if anybody wants to change the pamper and say something a little ra radical, people get a little scared. But I am kind of a little uh, comfortable already to talk. The Rebbe said then that he's speaking prophecy. Shocking. We didn't have prophecy for over 2,000 years. The Rebbe says prophecy has returned. And the Rebbe built an entire talk that he is a prophet, that he's saying this as a prophet. The Jewish people need to know that this is a prophecy. The Geula is here. Amazing. Now, when you read the talks that were given that entire year, you get goosebumps, especially over the last three years. When you're looking at what's happening in the world, and you read what the Rebbe was saying in that year, you can literally see their talks a prophet. Because every single talk, what's happening week after week, is literally describing what's happening in the world right now. It's amazing. On that talk, when he's talking about the 90th birthday, of his own 90th birthday, and talking about the power of Moshe Rabbeinu, he addresses something phenomenal. He addresses the idea, first he asks, why is Moshe the, the power in the redemption? Why do we need emotion? So he says like this. He is first, first a, related to what I said earlier. The whole idea of geula, of redemption, is that in the midst of a world, a world of concealment, a world of darkness, a world of nature, 
a world that does not allow you from within itself to recognize and to see the truth of God. The Jewish people declare Hashem, recognize Hashem, declare Hashem, connect to God, and not only do they connect to God, eventually they transform the darkness itself, that every single thing in this world, in this coarse, dark environment, begins to speak and reveal Hashem instead of concealing it. That's what they're... That's the objective. That's Geula. That's Mashiach. In the story of Mitzrayim, where do we see it? In Egypt, Jews were living in excruciating darkness and concealment. Then Moshe Rabbeinu came and he started making miracles and miracles. Suddenly we started seeing Hashem in the midst of the dark world. He takes them out of Egypt and the Jewish people declare, they can point with their finger and they can say, Zekeli, this is my God. And then what happens further? What happens? They take them into the desert, they receive the Torah, and through the Torah, what do we do? We make a mishkan. We take the very gold and silver that the Egyptians used to build idols, to build temples to their their gods, we use them to make a home for God. The resources of the world become facilitators of Hashem in the world. That's in the micro. Then thousands of years later, we do it in the macro. We, the Jewish people, continue this whole... We go back into exile. This time, we're not in exile in one little country. We're dispersed amongst all the nations of the world, all those that are part of the concealment. We are again suffering and concealment and, 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 and our very Judaism and our connection to God is threatened. Yet from within the darkness, we recognize Hashem. And, and not only do we recognize, we manage to change the whole world into a geula de world where Mashiach comes. And the Rebbe says the ultimate change of the world is when it happens not through a miracle, but it's somehow nature itself transforms itself to be revealing godliness, to do what God wants. Okay? So again, that's the ultimate. That the world itself, after we're done with it, starts to fix itself from within itself. Without an outside force of holiness that's doing it, it's as if it's just happened. Okay? He says for that to happen, in the middle of darkness, to be able to reveal light, and so much so, to become so true and so real that the world itself absorbs it and it changes from within itself, for that you need Moshe Rabbeinu. No one can, why? What does it say about Moshe? He says about Moshe, it says in, in Tehillim, in Psalm 90, that's the psalm that they started saying that year, it says, Moshe ish Elokim. This is a prayer to Moshe, who is Ish Elokim, a godly man. Ish Elokim. Moshe, a godly man. Okay. So he says, what's this description that Moshe is a godly man? So he brings from either the Gemara or the Medrash. Um, maybe the Midrash. Where the Midrash says that the reason why he's called a godly man is because his upper half, he's an he's a Elokim, he's a godly being. His lower half, he's an ish. He's a human being. He's ish Oh, So therefore, he has it within himself to combine the divine with, with the world. God and the world. Because he's half and half. He has that, 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 that's what the Midrash says. Moshe has that power of being both ish and elokim. That, that convergence is in the unique neshama of Moshe. But then he says that's not enough. Why is it not enough? Because in order to be able to take 
a world that was created from its very inception, the way the world was created, is it was created to block God. To be able to change the world means to have to metamorphosize it completely, completely transform it. It's not enough just that you have a, God, you have a godly person. You need someone who's connected to Hashem's transcendental powers. It's not enough to re- someone who has certain connections to the divine. You need someone who's connected to Hashem on a level where Hashem is not limited by any limitations whatsoever. And only from that place can we transform such a dark world. Therefore, he says, Ish Elohim is not enough. Here, please, every word over here is unbelievable. Ish Elohim is not enough. Why? Even though Elohim is one of God's names, Elohim is one of God's names, but Elohim is the name of God that's already limited, contracted. The name of God, because Elohim is gematria ha-teva. Ha-teva means, is 86, the nature. Elohim is a source of nature. So if you are plugged into God, where God is a source of nature, you don't have the power to bring godliness to the lowest of places. In order to bring Hashem to the lowest of places, you have to be connected much higher. So where do we find in Moshe that he is connected to Hashem? His soul is plugged in to God as he is beyond everything? That's hinted to in his name Moshe. Not Ish Elohim. Ish Elohim is a secondary name. According to this, a godly man is a lesser level, it's a lower level. His higher level of who he really is, is that he's Moshe. Moshe is much higher than being Ish Elohim. Why? Why was Moshe called Moshe? Because she pulled him out of the water. Basya pulled Moshe Rabbeinu out of the water. Okay, Basya, the daughter of Paro. Okay, I'm going to make you jump out of your seats in 10 minutes, 5, 6 minutes. So, so, but you have to bear with me, okay? Hold, hold this, hold this, hold this. Because you'll see prophecy, this is, unbe- this is crazy. This, this is absolutely nuts. I'm surprised that no one, I don't know, no one spoke about this yet. This, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is crazy. This is on a different level, okay? So, Moshe is higher than Isha Lokim, because Moshe is drawn from the water. From the water. What's the water? So in Kabbalah it says that water represents the concealed levels of the divine. Dry land, the difference between dry land and water is dry land, everything is exposed. You can see trees and bushes and animals and insects, everything is exposed. In water, everything is concealed. So what does water represent? A very high level of the divine where God is concealed because it's so high. What does that really mean? It means the infinite. Because it's infinite, it's concealed to us. And that's the name of God, Yudke Vavke. That's the tetragrammaton. God as he transcends time and space. So Moshe, it's as if it would say, Moshe is Havaya Ish Elohim. Moshe is equal. It connects. He plugs. It's not, he's not Havaya. He's plugged into Yudke Vavke. And as a result of that, he's a conduit to Yudke Vavke. Only because Moshe is connected to infinite power, he's able to come into a world that's suffocating from divine concealment, and in this world, open the lights and reveal godliness. And not, but, if Moshe would just be Moshe, but he wouldn't be Ish, he wouldn't be human, he wouldn't be Ish, if he would only be Havaya and Elohim, but he wouldn't be Ish, then he would be able to spill a lot of light in the world, but it would never be true to our existence, it would never be part of us. In order for it to be permanent, 
It needs two things. It needs to be connected to God himself, who's infinite, but it also has to be organic. That's the word I was looking for. It has to be organic to us. In order for it to be organic, the changes have to be natural and part of us that we, out of our own nature, recognize God. Moshe has to also, also be part of nature. And that's why Moshe is called Ish. He's human. He's nature. So you're looking at a person who's normal, a human being, a natural human being who eats and drinks and sleeps and walks around and you can touch him and talk to him. He's a normal, regular human being and he has to be normal. He's not a guy, he's not flying with, 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 with wings and, 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 and shooting light everywhere. He's a normal human being. Yet, Havaya, he's not just connected to Elohim, he's connected to Havaya, to Yudkei to infinite light, and he converges both together. Wow. But here's the next step, he says. And here's the prophecy, which I think is prophetic. Then he says, okay... But who revealed his name Moshe? Who revealed that his name is Moshe? When he was born, his mother gave him a bunch of other names. It says they called him Yekusiel. They can call him a, a few other names that Moshe was given. Where, uh, when was Moshe called Moshe? The daughter of, of Paro. She named him Moshe. More than that, this is crazy. How did, when, when she named him Paro, when she named him Moshe, I'm sorry, when she named him Moshe, the daughter of Paro, Basia, why'd she call him Moshe? Because she pulled him out of the Nile River. She pulled him out of the Nile River. And we're saying that pulling him out of that water means he's an Ishama that's plucked from the infinite light of God. He's, his soul is, is, was, was once one with the infinite and now she plucks him down into this world. But hold it! Which water are we talking about? It's not a sacred pool in the holy temple. It's not a mikveh in the Beis Hamikdash. This is water that's a, the idol of Egypt. This is the, 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 this is, this is the ultimate avodazara. This is the idol of Egypt itself. How can we say that when she's pulling him of that water, which is the idol of Egypt, it's the epitome of the antithetical Tashem, of impurity, of Tumah, that's what it is. It's the epitome of defilement. Like we said earlier, that she wasn't even allowed to put him into the water because it's considered saving yourself with something so dark. And yet we're saying that when she pulls him out of the water, the water represents Yutke Vavke, the infinite light of God. That's called concealed world. That's which, how do the two fit together? And here is, the, and here is, only, here is what Hasidus says. Hasidus says that's the way it is. Because whatever is higher... The higher something is, the lower it falls. And therefore, dafke yutke vafke, that is so high, that is so deep, that is so infinite, camouflages itself, gets concealed, and can become a force that's so dark, that's the, it's the idol of Egypt, it's the entire force of a land, of a country that's murdering and butchering the Jewish people and throwing their babies into the water, like the total antithesis to God, yet... It's, 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 it's a concealment on what? On Yudke Vavke, on the transcendental, on the infinite. And therefore, Dafka, when, when that darkness is converted, it will reveal the highest of the high. So who comes down to the river? 
the daughter of Paro. Paro is the superpower of this darkness. Paro is the, is the Kalipa himself. He's the crocodile in the Nile River. He's not just the small crocodile. He is the biggest crocodile in the entire Nile River. He's ugly as ugly can be. His daughter comes to the river and she breaks the Kalipa. Hear this? The daughter of Paro breaks the Kalipa and she reveals Moshe. She reveals the power of Moshe because she pulls him out, reveals who he is, and now he's the redeemer of the Jewish people. This is what the Rebbe says. I'm reading the talk, and I'm, by the way, it's the middle of a long talk. It, it, like, how does he suddenly, when he's 90, suddenly, it, it didn't fit into the whole talk. Why is he suddenly talking about the daughter of Paro pulling Moshe Rabbeinu? And Dafka, she's the one who's revealing Moshe Rabbeinu, the power. And the Rebbe says, that's the ultimate, by the way, that's the ultimate power of Moshe, he says. Not only can he go to a dark place and inspire the Jews, but he can take the Klippa itself, the daughter of Paro itself, and the Nile itself, and convert it to stop being an idol and to be godly, and to be the revelation of the highest godliness. So what am I referring to? So based on what I said last week, in 1990, 1991, the Rebbe already introduced the redemption to the world. He said, he gives Mangolaschem, time the redemption has arrived. But what happened? Immediately after that, the Kalipa, the Rebbe had a stroke, and then Gimel Thomas happened. And what happened? The powerful, ferocious Kalipas in the world, Kalipas means shells, external powers, got strong and strong and strong and they made Oslo and 9-11 and a war on Jerusalem and they sold the Jewish people down the creek so that Iran can have nuclear weapons, God forbid, and destroy all of the Jewish people, destroy Israel. They were going to rip Jerusalem apart. They were going to prevent the redemption. It was going nonstop. This is what was taking place. It was horrible. It was dark. And how did it all change? How did it all change? Everything was flipped over upside down. And again, I'm going to tread on, on waters that is, might not be so popular, but it's, but it's okay because we have to reveal the miracles of the redemption. 2016. 2016. On Yutes Kislev. Yutes Kislev was the day that they voted this current president into office. The, not, not the general election, but the... Um, the, the electoral college on the 19th of Kislev. And I'm not going to have time. I was going to go through all the dates because every single thing that he did. and this, Part of the Geul, I said earlier, is to notice, to have our eyes open, to, to notice Mashiach, to notice that Hashem is doing everything. Hashem is literally signing His name on every miracle. Why? Because when did He, when did he announce Jerusalem? On the 19th of Kislev. When did He rele release Shalom Rubashkin and the whole world thought Mashiach came, at least the Jewish from religious world. Everybody was dancing and singing on the night of Hanukkah, Zos Hanukkah. When did He um, announce that 52 years is enough, that's about time we should recognize the Golan Heights? On Purim. When did He, um, uh, what was it, uh, announce just... Uh, just recently that uh, all the settlements are not a, a fragrant violation of, 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 of international law. This was going against everything the world stood for. All the, all the darkness was screaming the opposite. He had the chutzpah to say that he doesn't care about it and this is the way it's going to be. When did he do that? Chav Cheshvan, that's the day of the Rebbe Rashab's birthday 
and uh, the, the fifth Chabad Rebbe. When did um, Notre Dame burn j just last year, which is also a symbol of the, of the evil of Esav? When did it burn? On the 11th of Nisan, the Rebbe's birthday. When did the uh, uh, Soleimani, I said earlier, when was Saddam Hussein uh, uh, um, um, captured? By the way, Saddam, back, going back earlier, when was Saddam captured? On the 19th of Kislev, again, the Chabad great Yomte, victory of Hasidus. When did they, when did Soleimani, when was he killed? Hey, Tavis, the day which Chabad celebrates as a big holiday when the Rebbe won the, the, the Svarim. I'm talking about every single one of these events are following an incredible system where God is showing us that he's doing these miracles for the Jewish people on auspicious dates. You can see clearly that this is all godly. But who broke the klipa? Who broke the klipa? Who's silently, seemingly behind all of this? The daughter of Pharaoh. Meaning the daughter of the most powerful nation in the world. They hate her, they're yelling at her, they're screaming at her. How does it happen that the daughter of the most powerful billionaire in the world who becomes the president of the United States converts and becomes Jewish? And she has Jewish grandchildren who come to visit their Zaydi. We, how, how, how did this happen? And we know that he loves her and it's her that at the core of his love for Israel, I think, at the core of all the changes is his daughter. And the Rebbe talks of who is the one who is going to reveal Moshiach in the world? Who is the one who is going to take Moshe Rabbeinu out of the other and cancel the idols of Egypt? Who's going to break that idols? The daughter of Paro. And he says it in 1991. You can look it up. I'm reading this last year. I'm saying, Kavald, am I dreaming or something? It's incredible. Everything is in the books. So, as we conclude, may the Abish to help. The main thing, it's so important, is again, that we should allow ourselves to believe. We should put away the cynicism. We should put away the doubts. When you come to people and you say, Mashiach is coming, and there are signs of redemption, you get, so much cynicism. Yeah, we heard it already. You're still a believer. We heard that. People have, because we've had such a long exile, people have put up so many protections, so many, what do you call them, uh, walls. But the redemption requires that we should believe. Redemption requires that we should understand that there is a Novi Be Yisrael. Yes, there is a tzaddik that's unparalleled to other tzaddikim who told the Jewish people, who's the one warming the heart to the Jewish people. Who's, I mean, Poyal Mamish in the literal sense, which tzaddik has brought to so many darkened Jews, has kindled a flame in their soul. There's no argument. You gotta be foolish to argue and to believe it's someone else. The Lubavitcher Rebbe is the only one with a global network to reach every Jew across the entire world. And he's lit the sparks and he said the Jewish people the time of redemption is a lie. Why do I have to doubt when he said he's a Navi? And he's giving this as a prophecy. The fact that it became dark, that's part of an Isaiah. That's how a test works. But it's a time for the Jewish people. It's time for all of us. Hisnaru may offer kumi. Shake yourself from the dirt. Realize we're so close. We all have an ability to be part of it. Only a little bit of amuna, a little bit of faith. Recognize the MS, the time of redemption has arrived. It's happening. It's true. It's here. It's much closer than we think possible. May we merit that already this, in, 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 in less than a month, is going to be the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of the day the Rebbe became Rebbe, of the pre previous Rebbe's Yortzeit, Yud Shvat. 
May that Yud be the ultimate Yud that is needed to awaken up the ultimate Yud, the ultimate revelation of Yud Kevavke, with the Geula Shalema, the complete redemption, the complete revelation of Hashem, and the complete revelation of Melech HaMashiach in the entire world. May we merit to see it now, now, and now. Hashem Echo, 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 Hashem